Welcome to Culture Hub PDX on Portland Radio Project. I'm your host, Veronica Bezesti. On today's episode, the future of Oregon's independent music venues, many of which are threatened with extinction due to the coronavirus-related shutdown. Independent music venues are the fabric of Portland's music culture, providing a powerful platform for emerging and independent artists and connecting live acts to thousands of fans at an affordable rate. We have four incredible guests today on Culture Hub PDX, all invested in the Portland music scene and all here to talk about what's happened, what's happening, and how saving these venues isn't just simply about live music. It's about the life cycle of our entire local music industry. With us today, co-founder and owner of Mississippi Studios and Revolution Hall, Jim Brunberg. Welcome, Jim. Hi there. Jim helped establish the Independent Venue Coalition, which unified the voice of local independent venue owners in order to appeal for government relief. Also joining us is Lori Hughes-Killen, who has spent considerable time within the local music community, both booking and curating artists. Glad you could be here with us, Lori. Thanks for inviting me. Malachi Graham, also known as one half of local synth pop duo Small Million, joins us with the artist perspective. Thank you for joining us. Hi, glad to be here. And Executive Director of Music Portland, Mira McLaughlin, whose organization unites, defends, and amplifies the Portland music community. Happy to have you with us, Mira. Very excited for the conversation. Thank you all for joining us today. Let's start, Jim, with this week's very important news. Our music venues are getting unprecedented assistance from the state. In a nutshell, what happened? Well, yeah, it's it's pretty good news. And we don't have the checks in our pockets yet, but the state did vote through the emergency board to fund quite a few things related to the arts, ranging from the opera to Metro to a list of independent venues that we worked hard for the last three months to compile. And these are nonprofits and for-profits, and they range in size from big places like the Roseland and the Brit Festival to name a couple examples, down to your neighborhood feel-good haunts like the Laurel Thirst, and then some great little theaters that we discovered, um, nonprofit theaters out on the coast in Lincoln City and out in Elgin, the Elgin Opry House, just a whole wide gamut of independently run venues. And we formed this coalition in response to the closure because we knew we had to pull together and do something. And you mentioned that it's unprecedented, which is our favorite word of the year, obviously. (laughs) But these are all entities that aren't used to asking for money. So we didn't have any lobbyists or anything. So I just encouraged all of the venue owners and operators to write to their subscribers and write letters to the state representatives. And we got their attention and they saw that venues were probably uh, one of the if not the most impacted industry in the state, one of the most impacted industries in the states. So we were supported by the legislature. And today they voted to uh, to fund uh, venues of all kinds. So I'm really excited about that. Um, it's a short amount of time. It'll, it'll last It's seven months worth of uh, life support, which is mm-hmm. basically our COVID-related. You know, while we are COVID-closed, this is what it's going to cost to just stay alive. So it's a small number per month, but uh, it affects a lot of venues, and I think it's going to help a lot of venues. 
At this point, do they know how the funds will be distributed and how it was decided which venues getting funding, how much they got? Are there mandates as to how they can spend that funding? So for this, for the grants that were awarded today, these venues, 78 of them across the state applied um, for funding from the state by submitting three numbers, their rent slash mortgage, their payroll, and their utilities. So that's what these grants are based on. They're very small survival-based grants. There will be another fund that was set up today of $26 million for any cultural institution, venues included, to apply for funds through that. And that'll be administered through the Oregon Cultural Trust. I know you helped found the Independent Venue Coalition for the purpose of advocating for venues. Why was it important to get a unified voice in front of legislature? Well, legislatures never viewed venues as being something that needs help. Venues are sort of scrappy. They're normally contributors. They usually pay taxes and contribute by giving the community a place to gather. Even nonprofit venues don't usually ask for money. They sometimes have drives where they ask their membership for money. But unlike um, other arts organizations, venues aren't very good at asking for money. So we we said, well, we won't be able to ask for much. We're not usually viewed in this way, but we can we can declare that to, in order to survive and remain a home for these arts organizations, we, we will need to have some basic lifeblood expenses. Uh, we need a little bit of help with that. So that's one thing we all have in common. We're very unified. We're similarly situated, whether you're a nonprofit or whether you're a, like a revolution hall, which is not a nonprofit, then we have the same, we're suffering the same pain. The different, the only difference in our numbers between nonprofits and for-profits is that a lot of the time the nonprofits have a little bit lower payroll because they're allowed to have volunteer labor. And sometimes uh, some of the venues that are owned outright didn't have any rent or mortgage costs. But in terms of zero income and having to pay somebody just to keep the building present and not taken over by the developers, we're pretty similarly situated. So we were pretty much one voice on these issues. Thanks, Jim. Mira, as the director of Music Portland, which advocates on behalf of our local music industry, you've been keeping a very close eye on revenue losses from COVID-19. Can you paint a picture of our local venues pre-COVID and what that picture looks like now? Well, pre-COVID, as Jim said, they're the lifeblood of our music economy. We did a survey just after as the shutdown hit in mid-March. And within four, the first four days, we documented about $4 million in lost performance revenue by local artists. And by the end of March, on the 31st, we released a new report that confirmed that we were close to $8 million in lost revenue. So these, these local venues that engage and book so many local artists, that money stays local. And their equivalents in other states and in other nearby areas, they're also feeding our local economy by paying these artists. Wow. Mira, have you seen or heard of any venues closing permanently? There certainly are some that have, but it's not something that is known. I haven't spoken to all of them. And, you know, even with the support funding that's happened, it's still very much a touch and go scenario for these venues. It's wonderful that the state has provided this life support, but as Jim said, it is really a bare bones minimum to keep the business from closing permanently. And 
as we go forward, it's going to be a challenge for the venues to sustain because they need to pre-invest in all of the programming that they might have and keep on building new contingency plans as we start to look at even the prospect of reopening, which won't be until next year. So I imagine we will lose more venues as we go through this. And the move today is so important to get the venues that we have to have the best chance of survival. Are you looking at the emergency aid package that was voted on today as more of a Band-Aid of the situation versus actually stopping the bleeding? Yeah, it it doesn't solve the problem. Right. It's a tourniquet. It really does help the venues to not have to close immediately. And many of them were facing that prospect if this vote hadn't gone the way it did. It doesn't mean that there aren't going to be additional needs. And everyone knows that in businesses of any kind, things come up. So it is going to be important that we don't consider this a done and dusted situation. It's Mm -hmm. not. The venues were very conservative in mapping their minimum requirements. And we appreciate that. But yeah, no, it's, it's, as Jim will attest, this is, I, you know, I keep thinking about in It's a Wonderful Life when Jimmy Stewart is asking people like, what do you need to get through to next week? Because we're in it together. And if we can live this week, we'll be okay. And it's kind of what the venues did. They came Mm -hmm. forward and they said, absolute minimum, this is what we need to not close forever. And I think that kind of solidarity is just incredibly ennobling and impressive. And these are all businesses that deserve to continue. And they feed so much of our local music ecology and our our entire community. These are the the heartbeat of our communities. So yeah, we've got a good tourniquet on, but uh, there's more work to be done. Very well said. Maliki, as an artist, one half of Small Million, you understand how important access to small venues is to emerging musicians. Would you share your experience with that? Yeah, absolutely. I play as half of this uh, synth-pop duo. Before that and continuing, I also play sort of Americana music. I've played in indie rock. I've sort of played at a lot of the different venues around town. But as an artist building a career here, the venues are really where it happens. It's where, you know, I, you start out playing smaller venues, venues that are willing to to take a chance on an emerging artist, where you're really developing as an artist eventually you know i've played at places like laurel thirst and turn 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 and the landmark saloon and it was actually at a venue where i met my bandmate it was at holocene actually that i connected with my bandmate ryan and we started playing music together and then we were doing that same sort of incubator thing playing around smaller venues and you know, in the earliest phases of that career, there's not a ton of money in live performance. But as you build your following, and as these venues have invested in artists, eventually, you know, it's possible to break through and you're playing slightly larger venues. And it's just very much an ecosystem. It's these are places where we meet each other. It's they're places where collaboration happens, where connection happens, Mm -hmm. and where you grow as an artist. So it's incredibly important to us as performers in Portland. The venues are 
kind of the whole sense of place of our community and the money from those performances, as Mara was mentioning, you know, it's money from live performances that lets us fund recording. It lets us work with local engineers. It helps us pay for PR. It helps us pay for gear. Live performance is what makes music possible. Right. How have musicians adapted and what are they doing while they wait for live music with live audiences to become an option again? I think, you know, you're seeing a lot of interesting things happen in the the live streaming space, certainly. A lot of people are just writing a lot. That's what Ryan and I are doing in Small Million, mm-hmm. spending a lot of time remote writing sessions and hoping to have some recorded music ready to put out whenever we can play publicly again. I think in terms of live streaming, it's been interesting to see... How do we continue to remind audiences that our music has value? I think there is an impulse to do a lot of free live streaming. Just people really want to get out there and connect with their fans. And I totally understand that. But when, you know, performance revenue is sort of off the table, I think it's kind of incumbent on all performers to make sure that we're continually reminding audiences, whether it's through if you can do a a ticketed live stream or, you know, making sure there's a tipping option available. I just don't want audiences to get too complacent about the value of music because it is a, a really challenging time for performers right now. Has Small Million done any remote performances? Have you experienced that? We have not ourselves. It's definitely something I'm I'm thinking about a lot. It's a it's really challenging to do for electronic music particularly. And also we are separately quarantining. So it is uh yeah, challenging. How do you think, just you know, kind of hypothetically here, but how do you think the experience of being on a stage would compare to that remote streamed performance? Man, there's nothing like applause. It's not why we do this, but it is sort of the sonic representation of the connection that you have with people and how you've moved people or not. And I think the thing with the limited live stream experience I have had is just that silence when you finish a song. Nothing will Mm -hmm. make you more grateful for a music venue than just the silence. (laughs) Even when I'm just watching friends' performances and I'm loving it in my own house, but they can't really tell that that's happening. And it's really deflating, I think, for performers. I don't know if anybody else is doing this, but I just walk around applauding every great once in a while just to (laughs) hear the sound of of clapping. Lori, having booked acts for McMinimins for a decade and most recently directing music curation for Artichoke Community Music, let's talk about the importance of our independent venues and what they nurture through, for example, residencies. Well, just that relationship directly to the artist. I mean, if you're going to have a residency, you know, that allows the opportunity for the artist. Well, if it's a touring artist, you know, that hopefully the idea would be that they would be able to come back to the market, you know, a couple of times a year and continue to build their fan base. And if it's a local artist, you know, if you're the venue allowing a residency to take place, you're, you know, championing again that career development. It's an opportunity for the venue to get to collaborate directly with the artist, offering a space to kind of think about how do you want to present the art that you're making and get it out to the fans that ultimately are being, you know, curated 
or cultivated rather. And small independent menus in particular are really crucial to that piece. I mean, that's a really intimate thing, you know? It's about that direct relationship. The small venues are in a really unique spot to be able to have that with artists. From your perspective and from your expertise and experience, how did the landscape change for local musicians once they had no access to these venues? Oh, decimated it. Decimated it. I mean, these venues being closed and not being able to to host music. I mean, obviously, it's the right choice for safety. But I mean, it's not just for the local venues, but touring. It's just, I mean, I've been on the phone, you know, with all kinds of people the last few weeks trying to see if we can get the touring machine going again for the fall. And it's just everybody's grounded, you know. We had so much opportunity here in the Northwest. I mean, our scene has been so robust for years, just in the Northwest alone. And everybody's just stuck, respectively, in their spots. Mm -hmm. And, you know, artists are, I have been seeing artists get creative with the live streams, but, you know, I would agree with Maliki. It's really, I have a lot of concern We already struggle with streaming music and people not placing value on that. You know, this is, to me, this feels very similarly to what happened with the record industry years ago with the streaming coming along and just kind of Mm -hmm. blowing that model all up. So there's unique opportunities to try to like reinvent and create. But I, I do have a lot of concern about the value of music. Like, you know, we already struggled so much to get people to pay for music. And now we have live streaming happening, especially with YouTube and all this other free content out there. I have I have a lot of concern about the direction of that for the long haul. You know, live live performance will come back. We'll get there. But in the meantime, I, I have a lot of concern about these young developing acts just giving up. A year is a really long time. Yeah. And 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 just like I can't stress this enough. Just like every other industry out there where people are talking about jobs not coming back, that is the same for our creative class mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. people are just going to give up, you know? You know, apropos to that, the I keep on likening the music venues to factories. And one of the the worst things you can do in a downturn is tear down the factories because then as things come back, the workers have nowhere to to work. And that's exactly what happens with these venues. This is the workplace of these musicians. And without them, they can't survive. We have seen some interesting sort of community events that are small, hyper-local. There's a series called the PDX Poor Sessions. There are other groups that are sort of bringing very small numbers of people together to experience live music and for the artists to actually hear the applause. And I think that the plan is to live stream some of those and with the goal being of keeping us connected and reminded whether we're seeing it through a screen or we're one of, you know, 15 people watching a live performance that there's something we want to get back to, you know, the, the, just the swelling that you feel music is transformative and music shared with other people is transformative. And I like the idea that some of these things, particularly as the weather is nice, reminding us of that. It doesn't replace a venue experience, but I think it keeps us connected to each other and to the music. This is for everyone and anyone to answer. 
you know, given this new way that we're experiencing music out of out of force, it came out of force, live streaming, the virtual chip jar, et cetera. How do you see that avenue of expression potentially permanently changing the landscape of our local music industry? Do you see it grabbing enough hold or will once venues are available, again, being being stopped. We're, we're no longer exploring the technological side of it. We're going to go back to the physical side. I'll jump in first. I think that there's going to be some combination for a while. And I think one positive thing that I would like to say about the live streaming, especially for artists, it's going to allow artists in an interesting way to connect with fans in places that they weren't able to get to before. And in fact, when touring gets going again, because if artists have really, you know, crafted well and played their cards correctly and strategized, they might have bigger fan bases in these places mm-hmm. that never existed before. So that's a real positive thing. It's just going to take us a while to get there. And I do think that, you know, again, like nothing can replace the live music experience. So, you know, I'm hopeful, like it just really depends on how long we have to stay in this situation. My opinion is the longer we have to stay in this situation, the more accustomed people come and the more lazy people get and just, uh, you know, are ready to just experience anything and everything on their screens. You know, we already struggle with that. I think that, yeah, it's going to be just a combo for a while and there'll be some kind of weird, you know, living with both for a while. I'll add to what Laurie's saying. It's created a lot of camaraderie between musicians and between venue owners, and we're more connected now than we've ever been in the past. And so what it's going to do, I think, is we'll still have streaming and we'll still have the amazing live events, which is where the the rubber really hits the road in terms of really catching people by their souls. But what what we're going to have more of is connectivity. Artists who never would have thought to play together before are going to be putting bills together and venues now are more in contact than they ever were before. So Revolution Hall is talking to the Shedd Institute. Elgin Opry House is talking to the Liberty Theater in Astoria. There, there's a lot more connectivity, which means that there'll be more action and more touring. Another thing we learned about this that's, that's caused us to have a sense of solidarity and a sense of purpose is that there is a lot of room for improvement. Venues can do some things better. For one thing, there aren't any venues in the state of Oregon that are owned by people of color. And that's an embarrassment, really. And it's something that we need to work on. And it's something that musicians have been reaching out, organizers have been reaching out, Friends of Noise and a couple other individuals, E.D. Mondanay, are reaching out. And there's a lot of connectivity because, as a whole, venue owners want to change that. They're progressive, forward-minded thinkers, and nobody wants to live in a state where there is a large portion of the population that's simply not represented in that capacity, in an ownership capacity. We want everyone to be able to go to venues and say, this is my home. I feel represented here. I feel included here. And you could look at it as a problem, which it is. But more than that, I think we're going to come out of this stronger and with a better ecosystem of venues that represent everybody. Yeah. And I think it's also, it's ownership It is employment and it is promotion, the opportunity spectrum that people of color can have in the music industry. And it's also booking. Portland in particular has had a lot of trouble 
dealing with the hip hop culture. And there's been a lot of over-policing and a lot of bad things that have even caused some closure of venues. These are all things that we have to grapple with and we should be grappling with them now in this moment of pause and really defining and establishing new systems because it's systems that have been holding this stuff back and too many of us that have been willing to just go with the system. We need to change the systems. And I think the commitment for the venues are amazing as we build a new, better music community that lifts everyone up. We speak united, at least it's not one voice, but it's a solidarity that we speak with now as musicians and venues where we're aware we've done some self-reflection as an industry just like all of society is doing self-reflection and you see the protests that are happening, these are all ways that as a people, we're trying to improve and become better and more tolerant towards each other as human beings uh, and be more inclusive. And musicians are doing the same thing. I've been trading as a recording artist and, and songwriter, I've been trading tracks with people who I never thought I would collaborate with. And it's pretty exciting. So I think that's the positive is that we've been sort of forced back into our cubby holes and into a sense of sort of reflective self-awareness, the good kind, not the bad kind, where we can say, hey, we'd like to be better at this. I'd like to experience uh, a world in which I'm sharing art and points of view with a more diverse group of people. And I think that's pretty much across the board. I've not encountered any situations where people are like, well, I'm, I'm going to come out of this and really... Uh, sort of define myself by having a narrower audience or a narrower group of people that I collaborate with. No, it's just the opposite. Yeah, I would second what Jim is saying. There's just been so much more opportunity to just connect with people all across the industry, not just locally, but also nationally. I mean, the stuff that's been going on nationally, there's a couple of projects that Mara and I have been working on. And I know Jim also has been collaborative with the national effort as well on his side, that venues and programmers all across the country are having are having to talk like it's it's bigger than just in our own city and that's really cool because we're having opportunities to see how folks are approaching things in other cities and that's opened my eyes a lot like it's really easy to get very siloed and just look at what's going on in your own city cuz that's big enough but the it's been so cool to have the opportunity to just collaborate with people from all over the country and hearing similar stories and hearing how people taken approaches to try to like, you know, put the model back together or reinvent it or just all the different strategies that are being used. That's a huge positive. It's a really, really cool thing that's happened. So for Music Portland, starting a trade association for an industry that had never had a trade association before and in many ways never thought of itself as a collective industry before. I think that when you are faced with a collective threat or a challenge like this shutdown, it really makes people stand up and take a closer look at the things that connect them. And as Jim says, you know, it creates a much sort of tighter community and solidarity is good full stop. It's just, it's good. And it will help that in combination to the things that Lori's talking about, connecting with lots of different cities across the country and really figuring out how we get through this together and remembering that we are not an island and no individual, no gear manufacturer, producer, recording studio, record label, distribution company, 
all of us are connected and we all will weather this storm together. And the venues, I've often described them as kind of the tip of the spear because the thing that I think will bring people back is that the venues are also curators. And that's the thing that live streaming and the endless prairie that is the internet doesn't really give you unless you have a friend that says you really need to check this out. I think we've all in Portland enjoyed an abundance of riches in terms of smart and heartfelt curation by these independent venues. And I, for one, miss seeing the opening band that becomes my new favorite that I didn't even come to see. Mm -hmm. And um, (laughs) I'm excited to get back to that because I think those are those transformative moments that are really fun. Along that line, I actually have some hope for what this will do for audiences in the long run. I feel a little bit with this this closure and everyone being stuck in their houses for so long that it's sort of the trend that society was already on of like, mm, should I go out to this show or should I stay home and watch Netflix? <laughs> should I go out to this show or I guess I can just order takeout and eat at home? And I kind of feel like... Um, like a a genie has granted a wish that it's like, oh, no, be careful what you wish for. You have access to all the Amazon Prime and all the Postmates and all the shows on Netflix. And we're like, oh, right. They're, after about two weeks, that is not that great. <laughs> Where I want to be is with my friends in a place hearing music and engaging with art. And I I hope that absence will make the heart grow fonder as things reopen, that people aren't going to take the music community for granted anymore. It is a really special quality of this place. And I myself will go out to more shows when I can. Mm-hmm. Very, very well said. Very well said. I love the fact that connectivity and humanity are going to bring us back, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. It's great to end on a positive note. Thanks to all our guests for the insight into the predicament in which our local venues unfortunately find themselves. And although the future for some is still uncertain, we all look forward to the day we can pack a crowded club and cheer our little hearts out for our favorite acts again. We wish you all the very best. Thank you, Jim Broomberg. My pleasure. Thanks, Mira Glaughlin. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Thanks to you, Maliki Graham. Happy to be here. And thanks for joining Lori Hughes-Killen. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. That's Culture Hub PDX for now. Rebecca Webb and Asha Wagner produce the podcast. Daniel Lin is our engineer and editor. I'm your host, Veronica Bezesti. See you next time on Culture Hub PDX. Culture Hub PDX.